0: G'day, Jared McKenna here. Decolonizing Sunday School is in full effect, and so is Subversive Seminary, and it's wonderful uh, joining many of you week in, week out in those spaces. But Drew, talk to us a little about what's happening on the podcast this next little while.
1: Yeah, these next few episodes, we're going to do something just a little bit different. Instead of uh, uh, bringing out some fresh content, um, which it will be coming soon, we've got some favorites in terms of what. Uh, me and Jared have found really helpful out of the podcast, but we're also going to include some of the most listened to episodes from the podcast as well. And so I think you all are going to appreciate these next few episodes.
0: You're listening to the Inverse Podcast, where we explore how the scriptures can turn our world upside down, or how it can be weaponized to uphold the status quo. I'm Drew Hart. And I'm Jared McKenna. And this is Inverse.
2: Hi, everyone. It's Julie Kerr here. I'm the producer of Inverse. I'm popping into your ears quickly to let you know that if you listen to Inverse, this is simply our welcome mat to a wider community of people from all around the world. We connect throughout the week with Liberating Sunday School on the weekend, which tends to focus on Indigenous texts and subversive seminary during the week. That focuses on anti-racism formation. We also have an advanced anti-racism group, which is currently studying the Africana Bible, a reading of the scriptures from the vantage point of Africa and the African diaspora. We also record these episodes in community, and we'd love to invite you into this space where you can have a chance to ask questions and to participate. All the information is in our show notes. Make sure you subscribe, rate and review this podcast in iTunes. But for now, enjoy the Following episode.
1: We are excited to have our next guest in our nonviolent atonements series. And that is someone who's not unfamiliar to this crew and to this podcast, Brian Zanz. He is the founder and lead pastor of Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. He's the author of such books as A Farewell to Mars, Beauty Will Save the World, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God, and Postcards from Babylon. He lives in Missouri with his wife, Perry, and we're just grateful to have you back on to uh, join us in this series. Welcome, Thank Brian. You.
3: Good to be back with you. You're, you're my kind of people. I like you, I like Jared, and I probably like everybody that's hanging out, but I don't know them all. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Beasley, uh, we're so excited to have you on, and our initial question which we ask is usually uh, biographical about people's experience of the scriptures. But in this um, series on nonviolent atonements, plural, um, we've been asking uh, about when and where do people first remember the gospel being articulated um, and or atonement being articulated. Um, Before I ask you that question, though, uh, our hope is that this Uh, won't simply be a a series of ideas for people to trade in, but um, lead people to a a more healing experience of God, that there might be a more healing presence in the world. Um, With that in mind, would you lead us in prayer as we start?
3: Holy Father, we gather in this moment to talk and think about the cross, what it means and maybe what it doesn't mean, how we can look at it in a way that brings uh, the revelation of who you are into our lives. And so, Lord, I, help, I ask that you would just help us to think well, to um, maybe see the cross in a new way, some new light during the season of Lent, and that you would continue to lead us on this journey to discover you as you are fully revealed in your crucified and risen Son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
0: Amen. Thanks, BC. So those initial memories of atonement being articulated, um, what comes to mind?
3: You know, I'm talking about, you know, very early. I'm talking about childhood sort of stuff. And of course, I wouldn't have used the word atonement or atonement theory. I just would have, you know, what does this mean? that Jesus is on the cross. And I think it would have come to me through gospel tracts.
0: So for those who aren't familiar, what's a gospel tract?
3: A tract, T-R-A-C-T, is a little pamphlet, uh, you know, that you can kind of leaf through. And uh, it's, at one point anyway, was very popular as a way just to hand to people on the streets, that sort of thing. Uh, two stand out in my mind. Uh, one not very good and one terrible. <laughs> <laughs> we'll start with the terrible one. The terrible one was a Chick track, J.T. Chick. I don't know if you know who they... God bless you if you are naive to who J.T. Chick is, but these were, these were garish cartoons that seemed to, in one way or another, always end up with people standing before this faceless, merciless, white giant that depicted God and and people being thrown into hell. And I I probably got the idea that God was angry, violent, and retributive, but that there was a way for me to get out of uh, being the recipient of that anger that violence, that retribution. that was if I would accept that it had already been taken out on his son, that God has this anger and violence and retribution has to go somewhere. And on the cross, he took it out on Jesus so that if I accepted that, that would be the language, uh, then I would get off the hook. Um, the other version would be something like, you know, the four spiritual laws or something like that, which is very formulaic. You know, it starts out, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And it, it just sets forth the idea that somehow uh, something was done at the cross that you have to, quote, accept, which really means, you know, agree with a particular atonement theory. And then you're in the safe. You're in the clear. Um, and it took me the longest time. To get rid of that thinking. It took me most of a lifetime Hmm. to get rid of that kind of thinking. Again, to begin with, it wasn't, you know, I would, I wouldn't have known that that this was a quote theory. And see, this is one of the problems with, and I, I assume we're talking a little bit about penal substitutionary atonement theory, PSA for short. Uh, but I always like to say penal substitutionary atonement theory because it just makes it sound so cumbersome and strange, and it should sound strange. Um, but one of the problems with PSA, which which you know, I don't know how much history you guys have already done, but it comes to a sort of from Anselm and definitely from Calvin. Uh, the idea that that God's wrath has to be satisfied. We, we can get into this however you want to direct me, but um, one of the problems with PSA is that it has eclipsed any and all other possible understandings of what the cross is. Um, even if PSA were true, and I'm absolutely certain it is not, I think it's a, it, a very distorted, very incorrect way of explaining what is happening on Good Friday. But even if it were one of the legitimate ways of describing what happens on Good Friday, it's problematic in that it, it just erases everything else. Yeah. Every, it, 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 it eclipses everything else so that, so that we're told at the cross, God poured his wrath out on Jesus so that if we accept that, then we don't have wrath poured out upon us. And it's like, done. Yeah. I don't have to think. I wrote down today in my moleskin little notebook here. I mean, I just wrote down, these are 12 things. that when we look at the cross and we say, what does this mean? This is at least these 12, and there's many more, I'm sure. It's the pinnacle of divine self-disclosure. That's what God does. Hmm. It's divine solidarity with all human suffering. It's the eternal moment of forgiveness. It's the enduring model of discipleship. It's the overthrow of the Satan. It's the beauty that saves the world. It's the refounding of the world. It's the supreme demonstration of God's love. It's the sacrifice to end sacrificing. It's the abolition of war. It's the shaming of the principalities and powers. It's the death by which death is conquered. But all of that gets eclipsed obscured, set aside, forgotten, for one explanation only. And um, at least here in the United States, and I suspect that it's true wherever some form of uh, evangelical gospel has gone, PSA has become the gospel. Mm. I mean, it, it to these people, it is the gospel. And that's why if you... If you offer a counter interpretation, or if you don't embrace that, that's why um, they find it so alarming and are so quick to drop the H bomb on you. You know, heretic. <laughs> and um, first of all, the gospel. The gospel. What is the the gospel? Is the story of Jesus, right? If you can't hmm. keep it narrative, then it's it's not gospel. It's the story of Jesus. Um, and I just find it. I find it maybe a bad practice to try to reduce the gospel to any kind of formula. Mm. Uh, But if we're talking about what the cross is, PSA has become super dominant. Uh, A lot of people get it in their hymns, Mm. Uh, you know, from a lot of 19th century hymns from maybe Baptist tradition in particular, anything that has any kind of connection with reformed theology that's where people pick a lot of it up. So anyway, I've gone yeah. on too long. Just yeah. an initial question, but that's that's where it came from. And I, I suspect that how I imbibe that understanding of the or misunderstanding of the cross is pretty common. I think that's a lot of people have a similar experience. Yeah.
1: So I'm curious, Brian. As I mean, you talk about these early memories and um, you know penal substitutionary atonement theory. I'm really curious how. You understand that particular doctrine, like what you were taught early on. How does how does, how does that depict? Like, what's your understanding of that depiction of God? Um, do do you think that that particular articulation of penal substitutionary atonement, like, how does that shape how we view God and how we understand Christian discipleship? Is it violent and retributive? Is it nonviolent, restorative? Like. What what, what what
3: flows out of that theologically, ethically? What flows out of that is that ultimately Jesus is saving us from God. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what's going on with that kind of, that it is, that I need to be saved from what God is going to do to me if mm-hmm. I don't get somebody to save me from what God's going to do to me. And mm-hmm. Jesus is the one that does that. Um, and... It's, it's easy to form it into a altar call invitation. Hmm. Um, I think so many of us are that, that retributive justice, that is justice that essentially equals punishment, makes so much sense to us. I'm not saying it is sensible, but I'm saying we are formed in that kind of thought, that it makes sense that, um, well, this infinitely holy God would respond to sinners with infinite punishment. This is hell. This is eternal conscious torment. But God in his quote love <laughs> doesn't want to necessarily torture everybody for eternity so that he provides a way that we can get out of this. And so Jesus steps in. But, but what this does is it makes Jesus very appealing but you're always a little bit nervous around (laughs) his dad (laughs) who has clearly has anger issues. And you're, you're always kind of wondering, does God, the father really love me or did he just work out a quid pro quo deal with Jesus? And so I I think that's really problematic in that it Mm. does great violence to the Trinity. Mm. That that essentially the cross becomes God, how, how Jesus saves us from God. Mm.
0: Um or, or leaves us with a, a God that needs to be saved. Yeah. Like <laughs> that the, the God you described needs to accept Jesus I mean, into God's judge. heart. <laughs> like
3: <laughs> part of part of the part of the unbelievable aspects of this understanding of or this interpretation of the cross is that it makes God penultimate. You'll hear this language a lot. Well, God has to satisfy justice. You know, justice and, and justice is a euphemism for well, that's right. It's punishment. Yeah. Somebody's gotta get killed, somebody's gotta die, somebody's gotta be punished. And but when we talk about atonement like that, it begs the question, well, who's really in charge here? Is it, is it like this? Is is God saying, look, y'all, I'd love to forgive you. Really it's in my heart to do so, but I got to satisfy justice. Hands are tied. What can I do? Yeah, and, 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 I'm only God. Which I want to say, so, so I need to go up a notch. I mean, I, I need to talk to your manager. So. <laughs> So that's that's part of the problem, is that we think that God is beholden to a certain concept of justice, and that is that forgiveness can only be granted if somebody suffers. Mm. That just doesn't make... I mean, once you, once you get liberated from the idea that you have to believe that, once you realize, you know, there's a whole half of the church, the whole Eastern side That's of the right. church has never believed that That's right. ever <laughs> yeah. and once you once you once you're given that little bit of that freedom to breathe you say you know that really is an odd understanding of god mm. uh, so so you know you can say things like um the cross is not what god inflicts upon jesus in order to forgive. Mm. The cross is what God in Christ endures as God forgives. Mm-hmm. Or you could say this way, um, the cross is not where Jesus saves us from God. The cross is where Jesus reveals God as Savior. Amen. One of the things that is so clear, I mean, in the Gospel of John, the writer of the fourth gospel goes to great lengths to make it clear that Jesus well, as Jesus is presented in the in the John's Gospel, he's repeatedly saying, I only do what I see the Father do. I only say what the Father says. The Father and I are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So the Son never acts as an agent of change upon the Father. Hmm. See, that's that's at the heart of PSA theory, that the son, in fact, changes mm-hmm. the father. The father has a certain disposition towards sinners, but because of what the son does, he changes his disposition. The Gospel of John would say none of that's possible because the son only reveals the father, it doesn't change the father, it doesn't alter the father, it just reveals the father. So if we're talking about nonviolent, well, then there's, I mean. Clearly, there's a lot of violence on Good Friday, right? Mm. There is there is a scourging, there is a torture, there is a crucifixion, there is a violent death. The it's question, just a question the, of whose. The question is, where does this violence come from? Yeah. And so, so let's just let's just be almost grotesque about it. Does it work like this? The father says, "You know, you know what? Okay." I know I created this world, and I know there's, you know, turns out they're all sinners, and I can't stand sin. Um, But I'll tell you what. I'll forgive it, but but somebody's going to have to die. And they've got to be a perfect person, so I guess it's my son. And so we say, all right, so Jesus has to die to satisfy your anger towards sin. Yep, yep. Okay, so how does he have to die? Can it just be kind of quick? No, no. I think um, crucifixion. I want I want crucifixion. You know what? You know what? I want thorns. I want a crown of thorns. Uh, scourging. I'm going I need some scourging too. How many lashes? Ah, you know. So, mm. you know. Then then people get uncomfortable and they say, well, you know, yeah, maybe some of this was God's will. God punishing his son, but some of this is, you know, some of this must surely be uh, gratuitous human violence. And I want to ask, well, how does this division of labor work? Mm-hmm. No, the the violence of Good Friday is entirely human. And we could also say uh, demonic. Mm.
0: Um, BZ, I, I was I was fascinated by what you're saying around um, the altar call, because I'm aware so much of American culture is shaped by revivalism Um, uh, not just the invention of coca-cola but um, snake oil uh, one of the fascinating things i know as someone you've ministered all around the world and when you and perry return home you must notice that commercials are just different in america right like there's just an intensity to and there's so much of um uh american Uh, like the four spiritual laws is an American invention. In fact, I think it was um, Scott McKnight who was telling me that initially it was three, but um, one (laughs) of the billies, it wasn't, was it Moody or um, Graham or, but one of the billies was meeting with an advert advertisement executive who said, you can't start with um, a negative. You need to give a positive. So so it's like God has a plan for your life was like then placed in there. And I'm aware that um, as you're articulating this, um, so often the articulations um, aren't about what it is to to be baptised into Christ, into a people who uh, are living like a, a new world has started. Instead, it is about um, seeking to get people to respond at a motive moment, um, uh, whether it's to put a hand up or, or to go forward. Um, how how do you now articulate? atonement in such a way that is worthy of the beauty we see in Jesus in such ways that it doesn't become transactional, um, uh, exchange in religious products. How, how do you, um, cause I know that's been so much of the work of word of life that you're not merely a, a preacher, you're a pastor who's seeking for a people to, to be that alternative in the world. Would you talk us through a little bit about how you now articulate, um, a gospel and an understanding of atonement that's reflects the beauty of Jesus.
3: Once I was able to jettison penal substitutionary atonement theory as an aberrant misunderstanding of what happens at the cross, what I discovered was a whole world of interpretive meaning Hmm. opened up. And so there isn't just one way, that I talk about the cross. Uh, You know, I just read you these 12 things.
0: Yeah, beautiful.
3: But I mean, and each one of them could unfold for hours of conversation and volumes of writing. But since we do so instinctively connect the cross with forgiveness, now the cross is about forgiveness and I'll get to that in a second, but it's it's definitely a mistake to say the cross is just all about forgiveness. I mean, it's about so many things. It is about shaming the principalities and the powers and the overthrow of Satan, and it is the death by which death is conquered, and on and on and on. But if we want to talk about forgiveness, I I would describe it. This is the kind of language I'll use mostly today. That at the cross, the sin of the world coalesces into a hideous singularity. It just just all of the potential for sin and wickedness and malice and violence and hate comes together in this like perfect demonic singularity. Sin becomes one thing that is violently sinned into the body of the Son of God. So sin becomes one thing. It is sinned into Christ that it might be forgiven in mass that that the whole of it is for when, when in luke's gospel when jesus says father forgive them hmm. for they know not what they do jesus is not as i said momentarily a minute ago jesus is not acting as an agent of change upon the father but is simply revealing what the father's disposition towards sinners has always been. Mm. It's one of, I forgive. So sin becomes one thing that it might be forgiven in mass. Now, does the Father know that the Son will go to the cross? Yes. I mean, you don't even have to make an appeal to omniscience here. (laughs) Plato understood this. Mm. Plato in the Republic talks about a conversation he actually has with his brother. And at one point, they were just, they were, you know, thinking, what would happen if a perfect man, a just man, would come into our society? He's talking about Athenian society. But he said, well, he would be mocked, he would be scourged, and he actually, this is the word he used, crucified. Crucified. So this is 300 years before Christ that Plato says, if a, if a perfect one comes among us, he's going to be crucified. Or as Gerard puts it, when I Gerard, he says, violence cannot tolerate the presence of one who owes it nothing. Hmm. So um, the Logos becomes flesh to, to, to assume humanity, that, that, that humanity might be healed. And and the moment the logos becomes flesh, it is mortal and and is going to die, but through death is going to conquer death. So that so that Christ goes down into death. Death can swallow divinity, but it cannot digest divinity. It's destroyed from the inside out. So that now to die is to encounter Christ. When, when we die, we we encounter not not an empty abyss, not a a, a Sheol or Hades, but we encounter the one who fills all things everywhere with himself. We encounter Christ as judge and savior. But But how Jesus would die? Well, he dies a violent death because he's come into a world that is organized around violent power. And his very presence is the ultimate challenge to that. So think about Jesus before Pilate in John's gospel. Hmm. Pilate only has one question. Are you the king of the Jews? Pilate's not interested in atonement theories. <laughs> he's not interested in theology. <laughs> he's not interested in intricate debates about son of man and all of that. He just wants to know, are you the king of the Jews? Because if you're coming kind of to be the king of Jews, we're going to have a problem because we already got a king of the Jews. It's, it's Herod, and he's the king of Jews because Caesar says so. And uh, Jesus is a little bit evasive, but he says, my kingdom is not from this world. It's for this world, but it's not from this world. He, in effect, is saying, Pilate, my kingdom doesn't come from the world that you understand. Mm-hmm. You understand the world of violent power. But that isn't where this comes from. If my kingdom was from this world, my servants would be fighting. They would be engaging mm-hmm. in violence, right. but they're not fighting. Um, And so then Pilate says, so you're king then. And Jesus says, you say so. For this purpose, I have come that I might bear witness to the truth. Whoever is of the truth listens to my voice. And then, of course, everybody knows, Pilate cynically replies what is truth. And then orders Jesus to be flogged. He's flogged, he's brought back. And... Pilate begins again his interrogation, but now Jesus doesn't respond. He doesn't say anything. And Pilate says, oh, you're not going to talk to me? Don't you know? Don't you know? I have power to kill you. I have power to release you. I I have power to release you. I have power to crucify you. This is Pilate answering his own question, what is truth? For Hmm. Pilate, the truth is this. The world is ran is run by those that wield lethal capacity. Those that have the power to kill. Now, now, in, in, in a sophisticated society, you hide that. You, you try to make that not so obvious, but you know it's always there. So this is what Pilate believes is the truth, but it's all a lie. It's a lie that goes all the way back to Cain, who kills his brother and founds the first city. Jesus says the whole, the whole system is organized around a lie. And I've come to bear witness to the truth. And the truth is that the world does not have to be organized around an axis of power enforced by violence. I'm going to refound the world at the cross around an axis of love expressed in forgiveness. So so once, the, once you release talking about the cross from the ball and chain of Calvin's... Uh, wrath appeasement, all of these new ways, beautiful ways of talking about the cross arrive on the horizon. Um, uh, the other thing that's, well, I mean, the other thing, so many things, but one of the things, again, that is so, I think, harmful about PSA theory is that it, it, it perpetuates the myth of redemptive violence. That's right. That in fact God is saving the world through killing somebody, mm-hmm. and then we extrapolate from that. Oh, ethics. Yeah. this is this is how you set the world right. You got to kill somebody. Uh, you have to kill the bad guy, or at the cross, you kill the stand-in for the bad guys. And and so so this is such common so-called gospel language in the evangelical world that. That God is able to forgive us because He satisfies justice by punishing an innocent man. What? Yeah. What, it, what? kind of bizarre language is that? If you uh, didn't Dei, think it was the gospel, if you didn't think it was the gospel, you would just you would call it absurd.
0: Yeah, and uh, Margot Day suddenly you'll, you'll, becomes it, a, a a murderous doctrine, like. Um, if, if your God is deadly, Amargo Day is incredibly dangerous.
3: Well, even in our legal system, there, there is no provision for uh, this guy's going to the electric chair because he was a serial killer. And somebody says, no, I'll take his place. We would say, yeah, this, that isn't how this works. Mm. We're going to punish the guilty, not the innocent. And yet, we bring it into theology, and all of a sudden, we think it makes sense. We think it makes sense because we think we have to believe that. We we've been told that's the gospel, and so we have to believe. And so, all right, I just have to believe it. Uh, I'm here, you know, with you all tonight to say what most of you already know. That's not the gospel. It's just not even. It's just not true. And so, um, people say things like this, and they they think that it's incontrovertible. They'll say. God can't just forgive. What? Of course God can just forgive. Of course God can just forgive. Take what is called the gospel in the gospel. <laughs> the, the, the parable of the prodigal son.
0: Yeah.
3: Right? So, you know, the younger son squanders the inheritance, far country, living with the pigs. You know the story. Comes back home. Well, first of all, what's not in the parable is the father saw the son at a great distance, felt compassion, and ran to the servant quarters where he beats the hell out of a whipping boy to satisfy his wrath, mm. and then went and embraced the son. Now, that's not in there. And also, there is no punishment. There's nobody, no, no, nobody gets punished in this parable, sort of, asterisk there's no punishment. Uh, The only justice that the father has recourse to in the parable of the prodigal son is the restoration of the fractured relationship. That's going to have to be justice because there there is no recovering of the squandered inheritance. It's just gone. It's it's lost. And, And what do we do with this debt? We forgive it. And we begin to have a party. And we begin to celebrate but remember, the whole point of the parable of prodigal son isn't about the father, and it isn't about the younger son. It's about the older brother, who is convinced that you just can't behave this way. Mm. The, the older brother says there has to be punishment, that, that in fact, the father is acting irresponsibly.
1: In bringing and bringing shame upon himself,
3: and and the and the ring, and the in the shoes, and the robe, and so let, let's let's work with it a little bit. So the parable ends; it doesn't. The story doesn't end. We're kind of left hanging because we don't know what the elder brother is going to choose, because that's the whole point. But let's say okay, he he the boys come back, and now they they've got the fat. You know, it's been going, and then the party's gone and it's it's uh, the dancing and the music. But now it's night you know, we're into the night, and where is the older brother? He's outside. He's in the outer darkness, gnashing his teeth, weeping, gnashing his teeth, and the father goes to him and says, my son, come on, your brother, he was dead, and now he's alive. He's lost and was found. We have to rejoice, and then It's just like the film ends and we don't know what happens. There is punishment in that parable, but it's the older brother punishing himself Mm -hmm. because he cannot accept the sheer gratuity of the father to just forgive. Mm -hmm. He's just forgiving. There is no payment. Nobody gets paid. No wrath gets satisfied. The only wrath in the parable of the prodigal son, is the wrath of the elder brother. Yes. And when we do theology as older brothers, we then project that wrath onto God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's good. And I think, I think that's Calvin in a nutshell, to be honest.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's good, Brian. Brian, I hear so much. I, I've been listening to you, and I've noticed... Um, Um, You mentioned Gerard, and I know, so not everyone necessarily in this group would necessarily know who Renee Gerard is. Um, You also mentioned Eastern Orthodox. Um, One of the things that we're interested in helping people as they're kind of processing, many people have not encountered nonviolent atonements before, um, is to help them understand what are the ingredients in your recipe, right? What are some of the influences and sources that uh, shape you? And so, could you share a little bit about... um, some of those influences, as even as you listed that beautiful list, right, of different things, like um, whose voices are in your head? Where do you go to? What sources are you drawing from um, um, that have helped you get
3: there on this journey? Yeah, Drew, you, you just named two of the big ones. <laughs> it's it's um, Renee Girard. Maybe I'll circle back and say something about Girard. Yeah, please say that. more about that. Yeah, yep. I'll come back to that. And then just Eastern Orthodoxy. I would say over the last 10 years, I have read an awful lot. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not Orthodox, big O. I'm not Eastern Orthodox, um, and I and I'm not. I'm not. Um, I'm not saying okay, I found the one true church and it's the Eastern Orthodox. I'm not saying any of that because that's not what I think. But I'm just saying that, um, you know, you you had what they call the Great Schism, 1054, but, but really. In one sense, the East and West were developing in separate directions already, just really based on language, that you had the Latin-speaking West, that most of us are heirs of, and then you had the Greek-speaking East, and just because there wasn't enough people speaking a common language, they sort of developed in different trajectories. I'm not saying that the East is necessarily superior to the West, but I am saying that for some of our theological pathologies, we might find some antidotes in the East. So we're used to thinking of, you know, the great division in the church or the great split or distinction, whatever you want to say, is Catholic and Protestant, or you might even say Catholic Orthodox and Protestant. I get that. I understand why you would say that, but I think it's also just as true that there is is a deep distinction, and it doesn't have to be acrimonious, but there's a deep distinction between Eastern Christianity and Western Christianity, and I think it's just really good for Western Christians as they become a little bit more serious about theology to read from the East and learn how they talk, and just, I mean, just, just learn that for however you want to say, how long you want to say it, I'll say 2,000 years. For 2,000 years, Eastern Christians have been able to talk about the cross without ever bringing up the subject that this is God punishing Jesus to satisfy his wrath in order that he can forgive. They have never talked that way. And so the idea that this is how Christians have always talked about the cross, it just simply is not true. It's just not true. Uh, Rene Girard. Rene Girard was born, I think. BZ, you
0: got to meet. Hmm? Uh, you got to, to meet Gerard.
3: I did. I did meet like, i, uh, I, I, I
0: if, if, if you're not going to gloat over that, we will on, on your behalf. Like, that's that's pretty a, amazing.
3: Day. I spent a whole day with him at his home in Stanford. Wow. And um, because I just, I, I wanted to pay respect to him, that, that he had helped me so much. And um, it was a beautiful day. I, I'll never forget it. Uh, Rene Girard was born in Avignon, France on Christmas Day, I think 1921, pretty sure that's the year. Is that right? My goodness. And um, so that would have been 100 years ago, but um, he lived into his 90s, Uh, but um, fascinating man, great intellect, uh, a a member of the the immortals in the French, you know, academy, and He did most all of his work in the United States. He moved to the U.S. right after World War II. And he had various, he, he was, his, his, his background was in literature. And uh, he first started teaching at the University of Indiana. He, he just wanted to come to America. He just wanted to get out of post-war France. He just wanted out. And he came to America and he got a post teaching French literature to American undergrads. And he said, all I had to do was, you know, like be a week ahead of them reading. (laughs) And and that's what, but it, it opened this door to where he began to see this pattern that he would call this later would call the scapegoat mechanism. He later had posts where I don't know, Duke and all Notre Dame, all kinds of places, but ended up for many years in Stanford. That's where he finally ended up. And um, it kind of works like this. Human beings, this species that we are, um, we have virtually no instincts. Now if you, if you think about, you know, the African Serengeti, you know, and the gazelle is born, and in three minutes it's up running for its life because <laughs> it has to, you know it just, it just it's newborn and it's up and running for its life. Human beings, Are essentially helpless for at least two or three years, or in my case, 60 some. (laughs) I still can't take care (laughs) of myself. And, uh, you know, I need (laughs) lots of help. So we, we don't have instincts, except we have one really strong instinct that is so strong, so pervasive, we're almost unaware of it. And that is our capacity, our instinct for mimesis, that is to imitate one another. It's, it's, it's how, you know, you try to learn a, trying to learn a second language as an adult and you find out how hard it is. Mm. It, it's just figure it out by just imitating. They just, they just see what's being done. And they imitate. Mimesis is, is, is a good thing. It can be a good thing. It's how we instill value and I'm going to have to 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 compress this or we'll be here all night, but we like to think, for those of you that are Enneagram, I'm an Enneagram four, and we fours especially love to think that nobody influences us. We have our own taste. We are the arbiters of taste, and, and that's what we like to think. The dark, deep truth is this. We like what others like, and we pick up our cues from other people, and that's great because it helps it helps transfer values to the tribe the culture the society the city the polis whatever that's fine unless 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 two guys start liking the same girl there's this girl one guy likes starts liking her and the other guy notices that my friend likes that girl oh i like her too begin they're not thinking that they're not really aware of that but it's His friend's interest in this girl arouses his interest in the girl, and so you have two guys and one girl, and maybe you have conflict. In early human societies, these conflicts would arise, and it became very dangerous, and it it could erupt into all against all violence, where these primitive societies would tear themselves apart and human beings have to survive. We have to stay together because we just we don't make it on our own. We're the most social of all beings. And so a, a a miracle occurred. We discovered, no doubt accidentally, and this happened all over the world. We discovered, although we I say we discovered, we we stumbled onto it, but we didn't know what we were doing, that if the whole tribe would pool together their fear, their insecurity, their rage, their wrath, all of that, and project it on one person. That woman right there, she's the witch. And that's why we're all stirred up here. That's why we're all at each other's throat because she's cast the spell on her or whatever. And, and what, what, what the group has to do is pick someone who is maybe different But certainly not really in a place to to uh, fight back, and so the the, the group agrees that they're the problem, and they blame them. and And in archaic society, that would mean they sacrificed them. They would they would well they didn't do it in a ritual; they just killed them. But it 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 produced, oh, and it, it it brought it brought for a time it brought peace into the community, because all of our anger jealousy, wrath, rage, was for a time exercised because it was put on that one person and then over eons it becomes ritualized and this is the rise of sacrificial religion and we learn how to do it somewhat purposefully and it it contributes to the cohesiveness of the society And it's almost like a miracle. And it saves, it it allows for the advancement of civilization. There's only one problem. Somebody's got to die. Somebody has to be the victim. All right, let me bring it all the way up to maybe, so maybe you can see this, how, how, how scapegoating works. So just imagine a group of adolescent boys on the playground.
1: And, you know...
3: They're finding out who's the toughest, who's the strongest, who's that. And there can be some anxiety and because they're not really sure, you know, who's, who's, and there's fear involved and competition and anxiety. But what happens is they pick, they they don't do it consciously, but it happens. One child is targeted as the the kid they're going to pick on we all agree we're going to pick on that kid for whatever it is. Maybe they're different. Maybe they look funny. Maybe whatever. It could be anything. And the the playground agrees we're going to pick on them. And it brings peace to the playground. It brings peace to everyone except for the one for whom the playground is now a literal hell. But the rest unify. They come into, they, they have a, there's peace. There's unity. So, I know how this works. This is a scapegoat. It's demonic. It is the Satan. Um, I know how this will work as a preacher. I know that if, if, um, if I just summon some rhetorical skill, and I'm in a large arena, and if I pick the right target, that's those Muslims it's the gays it's the whatever's you know whoever it's the liberals it's the whatever just pick them or it's the trumpers you can go either way and you pick them and and you and you begin to direct the wrath of the crowd toward we're going to we're going to blame we're going to take all of our anxiety all of our insecurity all of our fear all of our jealousy all of our rage we're going to pool it together we're going to put it in one single cannon and we're going to blast them and there is this moment where it's deeply cathartic and the love flows and and you're in my tribe and I love you brother and it feels holy except it is the, I, it's the exact opposite. It's the un- right. It is, in fact, the Satan. And you would think it'd be easy to be able to discern the difference between the Holy Spirit and the Satanic Spirit. It's not always easy. Not if you're basing it upon emotion and feeling. Uh, what happens then is, um, just keep this axiom in mind. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of advocacy. The unholy spirit is the spirit of accusation. If you have to be blaming and accusing in order to have unity within your group, look out! Look out! That's dangerous. Christ, among the many things that He accomplishes at the cross, is that Christ becomes the scapegoat. He is the ultimate innocent one who is let's let's use this language. This will get your attention. Who is lynched by the mob on Good Friday? And it does bring peace. I mean, Caiaphas and uh, and you know, Pilate and Herod become friends that day.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: And they they had been we're told they had been at at, at uh, they had animosity it's, at enmity yeah. at enmity with one another. But then when when Herod mocks Christ and Pilate gets the joke, oh yeah, let's and so they became friends that day. Uh, Christ becomes the ultimate scapegoat, or let's say this way, the Lamb of God, Mm -hmm. to expose scapegoating. Because what happens? He's the one that's blamed. He's crucified. But then the worst thing that can happen with a scapegoat is the scapegoat comes back. Yeah. The scapegoat comes back. But the scapegoat does not come back seeking revenge. The, The Lamb of God does not come back and say, where's Pilate? Where's Herod? Where's Caiaphas? Bring those guys. No. He comes back speaking the first word of the new world, peace be with you. And, and, the, and the scapegoat mechanism is exposed, but Jesus says, we're not going to play that way anymore. We're not going to play that game anymore. But here's, here's, the, here's the dark side of what Gerard says, and then I'll, I'll move off of this. But hey, Drew, you brought it up. So, <laughs> uh, so in, his, in his later books, especially Battling to the End. It's kind of a bleak book. Gerard himself in his latter years wasn't a bleak man, but some of his writings were. He says the the gospel has been successful in exposing the scapegoat mechanism. We know we do this. and um, But that creates a problem because then it doesn't work anymore. It doesn't work anymore, yeah. Scapegoating works. It, it it actually does bring peace. It's demonic, but it actually works. Um, and until you see it for what it is, and then it doesn't work anymore. And Gerard says we're at a place now where where we cannot really de escalate escalating violence through scapegoating because it doesn't work anymore. We're just too aware of what we're doing in that. And he says we're at the point where either we have to. Either we don't have this breaking mechanism, the safety valve anymore, or we have to really be serious about following Jesus. Hmm. And, um, but, but, but another weird side of Jesus exposing the scapegoat is that now that we've been alerted to the innocence of the scapegoated victim, now the competition becomes to be the victim. And Christians are to be that unique people who neither blame and victimize others but neither want to clamor for the status of victim Hmm. so you see this is very interesting about the early christians who often were we would say victims they were often persecuted they were often blamed when you know something when there's a plague in the town it must be this crazy sect of christians and they get blamed and there's kind of spontaneous mob violence against them the interesting thing is the early Christians never, never took on the mantle of we're the victims here. If, if you had suggested, oh, you, you're, you're, you, are, you people are, are victims of this abusive Roman system, the early Christians says, victims? <laughs> are you kidding me? No, we're more than conquerors. We, we're mm-hmm. children of the king. We, we reign in Christ. And they really thought that way. Yes, they knew they could have their goods confiscated or worse. But the, but the mentality of being a victim, ah, they, they never embrace that. And so I think that is a model for us to try to, to aspire to, that, that on the one hand, we are those that, that seek justice, advocate for the victim, expose victimization for what it is, but never ourselves want to then claim the the mantle or the role of being the victim. Uh, somehow we're 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 outside of that whole framework of making victims or claiming victim status. Mm-hmm.
0: And hence the the more than conquerors conqueror. Um, you know, in the ancient world, is just another way of saying those that defeated in battle, right? Like, and so, what is it to be well, something other than? A conqueror, a more yeah, so, so than a conqueror.
3: Somebody says, well, what, what has Jesus accomplished? You know, there's still atrocities in the world. And I say, yeah, and now we call them atrocities. Mm-hmm. We didn't used to call them atrocities. We just said, it's the way it is, man. You know, the, the, the strong prey upon the weak and the winners win and the losers lose. And that's that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Christ has alerted us to the humanity of those that lose and those that are victimized. And in some ways the gospel has been far more successful than I think we often give it credit for because mm-hmm. it, it, it's so pervasive, we just assume that that's how people thought. But the idea that mercy and humility were necessary to values in the Greco yep. Roman world, this is really not true. That's mm. an accomplishment of Christ.
0: Mm.
3: And again, we see that at the cross.
0: Oh, Amen. bz um I'm aware as a pastor, and uh, you've taken a community on this journey around um, what I guess most of the people whom you've pastored um, uh, may have grown up with PSA as um, the gospel, even
3: for all of us, really. yeah,
0: Right. Yeah. And um, I'm sure a lot of people come to you with particular passages. We're we're almost collating uh, passages that people struggle with because it's the it's the way they've been taught to see all things when, when you think of um passages that people repeatedly come to you with saying, Ah, but Pastor, what about I'm fill I'm in the, the blank? My Bible, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's an open book test, so feel free to <laughs> have the Bible on here. Um, what are passages that people typically come to you with, uh, uh seeking to actually um, uh, o- almost resist? this invitation into this, this, a, a different way of saying
3: this is a passage that they either come to me with or come at me with <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is uh isaiah yeah 53 ah. isaiah 53 if you take the whole of it the whole chapter this is a remarkable insight into what i've just been talking about yeah the scapegoat mechanism where the suffering servant, who, who is something of a mysterious figure. It's, it's up, at certain times, this servant is called Israel, but it seems as though, you know, Isaiah of the exile has something more specific in mind. Um, maybe he, Maybe he sees himself as that maybe he's had experience with this i'm not sure nobody's quite sure christians though of course immediately see jesus we can't help we just can't read it any other way and not see that i'm not saying it's the only interpretation i'm saying it is the christian uh default we, we can't not not see jesus in this um and so there's this root out of dry ground that's growing up and the and, and this this servant is despised and rejected by others he's a man of suffering he's acquainted with pain and all of this and uh and we esteemed him stricken smitten of god and afflicted but no, you know it was our own sins that were wounding him it, so it, it's it's all it's exposing this scapegoat mechanism and several of these passages show up in the in the new testament new testament writings gospels and epistles but then you have this one verse here this one verse that that by the way many translations i'm using the nrsv uh they just come right out and like what does it what's it say here in the uh the footnote meaning of hebrew uncertain <laughs> they're saying, i'm not, <laughs> not sure what this is uh but isaiah 53 10 this is in the nrsv Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him with pain when you make his life an offering for sin. And so this is the verse that people go, aha! See, it's the will of God. It was the will of God to crush Jesus with pain so that God could forgive. A couple of things I want to say about it. First of all, I don't know that we really should be doing New Testament atonement theology out of Old Testament verses that are not quoted in the New Testament. And this one is is not used in the New Testament. New Testament writers were always plundering the Hebrew scriptures and saying, ah, this is this, this is this. And they they just ignored that one. That's, That's one point to make. The other thing is, when... New Testament theology. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pause here. I'll come back to this, but I do want to make this little caveat. I use the term Old Testament. And I do it. There, there, there's, there's a lot of people that want to say the Hebrew Scriptures. And I don't do that. And here's my case. <laughs> the, the New Testament, Testament is, is the... the Hebrew Scriptures. But the but. We Christians read Hebrew scriptures in a different way, and so the Hebrew Bible is the Hebrew Bible is the Hebrew Bible. Yeah, but there is a New Testament reading of the Old Test or of the Hebrew Bible that we call the Old Testament. I think it's actually more, in one sense, more respectful because I'm not saying to Jewish people this is how you have to read. This is the only reading. This is the reading of the Hebrew Bible. You're not reading your Hebrew Bible right. I'm not going to say that. I'm just going to say I'm a Christian. And I'm going to read this First Testament in the light of Christ, and so that's why I speak of it in that kind of language. All right. But as the New Testament writers worked with the Hebrew Bible, because that was the scriptures they had, um, they are working from the Septuagint. That is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. We know that because there are significant differences at places. And we see how New Testament writers, Gospel writers, and those writing the epistles—they're clearly working from the Septuagint, not the Hebrew. So the Septuagint reading of Isaiah fifty-three ten is just
1: just a little different,
3: and it goes Hmm. like this. This uh, is—I don't have my—I've written it in my margin, but my Septuagint is at my study. It's a new. You know, a new translation of the Septuagint. I mean, you understand I'm not reading Greek. I'm reading an English translation of a Greek translation of a Hebrew text. Did you stick with me there? All right. Isaiah 53, Septuagint 5310. Yet it was the will of the Lord to cleanse him of his injury when he makes his life an offering for sin. I mean, the difference between those. It was the will of the Lord to crush him with pain or the will of the Lord to cleanse him of the injury. I just say, okay, I'm going to default to the to the Septuagint. And um, it was not... I mean, the cross is not what God inflicts upon Christ in order to forgive. The cross is what God in Christ endures as he forgives. So that that's... Isaiah 53 is what often comes up when people want to defend a violent um, salvation through divine violence. Mm-hmm. Isaiah 53 10 is, is where they go to. And BZ... And I, response I, to that.
0: I know that for for some people, um, why that text, other than it's so evocative and emotive, yeah. but why that text um, becomes a, a go-to is... Um, uh, a very like um, real sense that they want the cross to do something other than unmask a dynamic, which you would also say like a Gerardian um, yeah. reading is in- incredibly important, but um, uh, what, what Anselm w- was seeking to do was actually um, something that changed the nature of reality. Um, w- we don't have to give that up. It's just not a change in God. It's actually in creation it's actually in uh, it, not just um um abelard's like there's a potential change in the human heart if you're inspired by it but no, a- actually reality is different um but who who god is the nature of god is not different this side of the incarnation it's just we reveal it
3: yeah think think about um you know I mean, I, I have a crucifix right here in front of me. It sits here on my writing desk. It's always here. Uh, it's beautiful. Yeah. Um, so it's an Orthodox cross icon. You can see that.
0: Yeah, it's beautiful. And it,
3: it is beautiful. Um, and, and we have become accustomed to looking at crucifixes in terms of beauty. But think about what an achievement that is. Because I promise you, when the Romans were crucifying people, they weren't trying to create art. (laughs) They they were doing something that was deliberately horrifying, repulsive. It was a form of psychological terror inflicted upon an occupied people. The message was, if you challenge us and our manifest destiny to rule the world, this is what's going to happen to you. Um, And so crucified victims were always stripped naked and that was part of the humiliation. But Paul turns it around. He says, you know, at the cross, it was the principalities and powers Mm -hmm. that were stripped. And they were the ones that were put to shame. They were trying to shame the son of God, but it doesn't work. And it turns, because the principalities and powers, I'm talking here about the very powerful and the very rich, they're, institutions and the spirit that animates it all they claim they have the right to rule the world because they are wise and just but the cross exposes that as not true that in fact what's really going on is their their let's use this thing, their naked bid for power yeah and the cross exposes those that would use means of domination to position themselves at the pinnacle of pyramids of power as not being wise and just, but simply being those that have made a naked bid for power. And so it heaps shame on all of those domination systems. That's one, see, see, again, once I say, once you liberate the cross from the ball and chain of the aberrant PSA theory, then all of these myriad of other, True interpretive meanings are open to you. That's that's just one of the really bad things about PSA is it seems to close down everything. It's, Mm. you know, the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus. We're done. We don't have to talk about it anymore. And you never get to shaming the principalities and the power. You never get to exposing the scapegoat mechanism. You never get to any of these other things that the cross is clearly about.
1: Mm. Right, I mean, you're in some ways going right where I wanted to get you. So I'm just going to open the door to let you walk all the way through, which is, you know, thinking about um, atonements as you have articulated so beautifully, you know, we want to think about like, how does it have feet in the world that we live in, right? In terms of, you know, the disproportionate suffering that goes on as we think about, you um, theologies that accommodate domination, colonization, supremacy, cycles of violence. Like where do you start in challenging these theologies that accommodate these um, systems of
3: domination and violence? Well, the cross, here's another thing the cross is. The cross is in fact, the coronation of the world's true king. Now, I understand. The the acclamation was by insult. His scepter was a reed. His cross, his, his crown was made of thorns. His procession was to carry his cross through town. His throne was the cross itself. Remember James and John, the sons of thunder. They said, we want to be on your right and your left in your glory. And Jesus says, you guys don't even know what you're asking. And they said, oh, yeah, we, 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 we're, we know. Can you drink this cup? We can drink this cup. Please. Jesus, you may drink the cup. But to be on my right and my left is not for me to decide. It's for whom it's prepared by my father. Well, see, James and John are thinking in conventional terms of domination. They are thinking that the kingdom of God is going to be just a different version of the kingdom of Pharaoh, the kingdom of Caesar. And they thought they were asking to be Secretary of State and Secretary of Defense in the coming administration of Jesus. And what they were actually asking was to be crucified with Jesus because this is how Christ comes into his glory. It's through the cross. And Christ always reigns from the cross. And so this, this is why Jesus says, James, you don't know what you're asking. You're asking to be crucified with me. So the kingdom of God has nothing to do with the systems that employ violence for the sake of domination. It just doesn't come that way. It just doesn't come that way. It always looks like the cross, so that in the kingdom of God, we persuade by love, witness, reason, rhetoric, spirit, and if need be, martyrdom, never by force, never by domination, never by violent coercion. We just don't do it that way. And so... um, and the other thing about the cross of the other thing like one of the other things about the cross is that let's also remember the cross is not something that is exclusively done by Christ. Now, yes, the logos made flesh nailed to the tree on good Friday there are all kinds of things that are utterly unique about that. But it's also the enduring model of discipleship. That's right. Jesus says if you want to be my disciple you want to be my disciple fantastic. Here's the terms. Take up your cross and follow me. Now, you know, today cross has some sort of religious uh, meaning to it. I mean, you know, we understand that. When Jesus first says, take up your cross, it is only understood as a Roman implement for execution. And Jesus is saying, we are going to challenge this imperial system by embracing the very thing that they use to subjugate us. We're going to subvert it. And the thing that we are to fear the most, we're going to actually embrace and we'll take it up. And, and so when the empire says, if, if you don't uh, bow to Caesar, we're going to crucify you. And the follower of Jesus great. I, I already got the cross right here. I brought it with me. I'm ready. Now, I mean, that sounds like heroic language, but let's just remember that. I mean, one of the things that has most disturbed me in recent, I don't know. I mean, it's been a long time, but I mean, I've seen it increasing in recent months in America is the kind of language that I hear from angry white evangelicals where it's very clear to me that martyrdom is not on the table for these people. And yet, this is part of the, the basic terms of discipleship. Martyrdom is always on the table. The moment we sign up to follow Jesus, uh, we understand that there's always the potential that we will have to lay down our life. I mean, that's why we begin, we begin our discipleship process by having a funeral, baptism. by being buried. That's right. And a lot of what I'm hearing out of white American evangelicals reminds me of the Homer Simpson line. If Jesus had had a gun, he'd still be alive today. (laughs) 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 And so you, you saw the early Christians so gloried in martyrdom that, you know, that now and then the preachers had to say, whoa, whoa, no, people, now you can't just go intentionally trying to provoke your martyrdom. You know, if martyrdom comes, so be it, but you can't go just deliberately looking for it. Uh, you know, so there would be, maybe that could be a little bit unhealthy, but we're so far to the other extreme where uh, martyrdom is is not, I mean, among these that I'm describing, is not even a possibility, not even something that they would ever consider. And so... Um, you know, the kingdom comes by co suffering love, by arms outstretched and offered embrace, saying, Father, forgive them. So, our, our posture in the world is to be a reflection of that. So, uh, part of my morning liturgy of prayer, mm-hmm. and I will often and almost always have a cross icon somewhere around me when I'm praying, and I And I pray this prayer. I mean, I open my eyes, I look at the cross, and I I actually make this gesture, you can't really see, of you know, the cruciform, and I say, Lord Jesus, you stretched out your arms of love upon the hard wood of the cross, that everyone might come within the reach of your saving embrace. So clothe us in your spirit that we, reaching forth our hands in love, may bring those who do not know you to the knowledge and love of you for the honor of your name. So that our posture as Christ followers in the world is one of of this. Arms outstretched in an offered embrace. It's not the clenched fist of protest. It's not the pointing finger of accusation. It's not the wagging finger of shame. It's, It's this. So I'm afraid that too often the cross has become, oh, that's what Jesus does. You go, Jesus, you know, go there and die for my sins. And I'll just, I'm going to stand right here and cheer you on. And Jesus says, you know, funny thing, I'd like for you to take up your cross and follow me, do it like I do it. So that's also a factor that for whatever reason, PSA sometimes tends to screen out.
0: Yeah, um, on a personal note, uh, Holy Week next week, um, I go before a magistrate again. Um,
3: I, I, I saw.
0: <laughs> it, it's tis the season, I guess. Like, um, uh, and I'm, I'm very aware that um, uh, my current employment uh, becomes um, uh, less solid than it previously was in light of that. And, um, the, the kind of attention that it often attracts from those who share our baptism, um, maybe we could just say it's, they're not moving in the gift of encouragement. Like there's, (laughs) there's a lot of stuff that comes in that, that, that is less than, um, uh, bearing one another's burdens. I'm, I'm aware that, um, so many people um, are rediscovering the cross as solidarity, which the cross certainly is in in sufferings unwanted. The cross is also a a call to share in that suffering. Um, I'd be, I I guess I would love to give you permission to actually speak to the situation of um, so many people whom listen to inverse it's their discipleship that has changed their atonement. It's their seeking to follow Jesus that they've realized actually the way that I've been taught to articulate this, it, it doesn't actually work. Like it gets in the way of me like responding to the spirit's work in my life and, and deepening in Christ likeness. W- would you speak to to those um, who were seeking a more integrated approach where the cross does become, um, I, I'm, I'm trying to avoid the word practical and maybe I'll use the word embodied because practical it, it is often such a cheapening and it sounds mechanistic and it sounds, um, uh, something that's, um, uh, not worthy of like three easy steps, <laughs> three easy. That's right. True. Yeah. Yeah. But for, for those who are seeking to I- embody, um, The costly love that is stronger than death, that does liberate, save and deliver us. Would you offer a word of encouragement as we come to land?
3: Yeah. um, The cross is, again, as I've said repeatedly tonight, so many things. One of the things the cross is, is its divine solidarity with all human suffering. I think the cross is really the only real theodicy we have in the Christian faith. Theodicy is Mm -hmm. the attempt to reconcile two seemingly irreconcilable claims that we believers make. On the one hand, we claim that God is all good, all-knowing, all-powerful, and yet our world is filled with sorrow, suffering, pain, and injustice. And so how do you reconcile that? Well, at some point, perhaps uh, an appeal to free will may need to be made, but Uh, the only real theodicy we have as Christians is that God in Christ does not exempt himself from that suffering, but joins us in it. That being disguised under the disfigurement of an ugly crucifixion and death, Christ upon the cross is paradoxically the clearest revelation of who God is. God does not hold himself above the fray but enters into it with us. So perhaps you find encouragement in understanding that, in fact, Christ really does know your pain because he's not separated from it. He is the man of sorrows. He he is the one who was nailed to a tree. He is the one who has received derision and was spat upon and mocked and abused. Or maybe you find encouragement to say, I am willing to be identified among the suffering. In fact, I'm willing to join them in their suffering. I'm willing to also imitate my Lord in finding ways of enacting solidarity with those that are suffering, those that are being treated unjustly. Um, I want to read a quote. Well, I want to read, it's a quote from... Walter Brueggemann, it's in in the uh, forward, to postcards from Babylon, but I think the forward is the best part of the book. (laughs) Uh, This is just the opening of the forward, Walter Brueggemann. As long ago as the 16th century, Martin Luther boldly voiced a vigorous either-or for Christian faith in terms of a theology of glory, and a theology of the cross. By the former, Luther referred to an articulation of gospel faith that smacked of triumphalism, that was allied with worldly power that specialized in winning, control, being first, and being best. For Luther, that theology was all tied up with the European European imperial of his time. By the contrast of a theology of the cross, Luther referred to the risky way of Jesus that is marked by humility, obedience, and vulnerability standing in sharp contrast to and in opposition to the hunger for glory, or you might say victory. The way of the cross for Luther is demanding and costly because it contradicts the dominant way of the world. And so in this season of Lent, especially as we come upon Holy Week, uh, allow allow your theology to be rescued from the all-too-dominant, I'm not going to say theology of glory, because I think that can be misunderstood, this theology of victory, mm-hmm. which is often very present in the prosperity gospel, uh, where we've got to win, we've got to prosper, we've got to succeed, we've got to be number one, we've got to be on top. And that, in fact, is a distortion of the gospel that is simply trying to align itself with the fallen world as it is, especially in its superpower iterations. Instead, we are called to something that is very, very counterintuitive, and that is the way of the cross. And the cross, you know, it's going to be, Paul says, it's going to be foolishness to some and an offense to others but to those of us who are being saved, we're being saved. And there's a lot to be saved from. It's not just, you know, my, my, we, we used to use the language eternal destiny. No, I mean, I'm being, I, it's, it's me. I'm being, I'm being saved from my own inclination towards selfishness and self centeredness and self absorption and self indulgence so that I become distorted. And I, I'm not, the image-bearing creature that God intended me to be. I need to be saved from that, and it is the process and work of the cross that's doing that. So maybe you find comfort in the midst of your own suffering in knowing that God in Christ has joined you in complete solidarity and knows what that is and is with you in it Or, Maybe you find encouragement to say, I too am willing to take the risk of enacting solidarity with the least, with the abused, with the suffering, with the marginalized, with the rejected, because that's what my Lord did. And when I come to the end of myself, I can always just say what Jesus said. Father, it's in your hands now. I mean, I think that's one way of understanding that final prayer of into your hands I commit my spirit. Think of it like this. Father, I've done everything I can do. I've told the truth the best I can. I've done what I'm able to do. And now I'm dying. It's all in your hands now. And so um, we're, we're, we're don't, we're, you don't have to go change the world. Mm-hmm. There's too much pressure on you. Don't go mm-hmm. change Simply enact faithfulness. And when yeah. you come to the end of yourself, say, Father, it's in your hands now. And I know we're in the middle of Lent, but but spoiler alert, God is the God of, a of <laughs> resurrection. And, and the, what looks like the end, the cross always looks like the end. It's actually a portal to an entirely new world where, to use the language of Jesus, all things are possible.
0: I'm, I'm trying to resist the hallelujah in Lent. <laughs> Thank yeah, you, Desi. yeah um, Yeah.
3: Because I jumped ahead a little bit. but Right. <laughs> The Inverse podcast is proudly supported by you, the listener. And if you want to join the revolutionaries who are helping us have conversations about how this
0: ancient text can still turn the world upside down, why don't you head over to patreon.com slash Inverse.